There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Assumption is that an independent central bank will raise interest rates in order to attract money into the country to finance the budget deficit. I've been an economist for 50 years. I went through the Great Recession. I have never seen such raging incompetence ever. A smaller than expected increase for consumer prices. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Now, do you remember Bruce Forsyth? All right, my life, good game, good game. Welcome to the Generation Game. Uh, well, there's a new Generation Game, and we are all paying for it. The one where the old always win, the young always lose. How long will young people put up with that? And how does the economy survive if a growing proportion of the population are steeped in debt and can't even afford to buy a house? We'll look at the Generation Game. Good game, good game. This week... On the Debunking Economics Podcast, I'm Phil Dobby, he's Steve Keen. Welcome along. So, yeah, when it comes to a sustainable economy, I think, you know, it is a case of Houston, we have a problem, Mm. uh, particularly when it comes to the situation where we've got the elderly uh, often sitting on homes and other assets which are, you know, with enough wealth to see them through and pass it on to the next generation and then the young who haven't had that money passed on because they haven't got wealthy parents with college debt unaffordable housing and right now a a cost of living crisis you know maybe not even able to turn the heater on uh, has it all become unsustainable so that's what we're looking at this week i've I've called it the generation game which Mm -hmm. uh you won't know because you weren't here but the generation game i think there was an australian equivalent Mm -hmm. where you had a family uh like a mother and daughter yeah uh, who played the game together and bruce forsyth was the uh was the host of it bruce forsyth the man with a a very large chin he used to go nice to see you to see you nice uh which is a brilliant uh bruce forsyth impression but you won't get it because you don't know who he is Mm. uh and uh, it was yeah it was very popular in the 70s here so anyway Mm -hmm. so that's why it's called the generation game Mm because it is a bit of a game and it's all based on you know intergenerational wealth Mm. uh, and how if you if that gets passed on if you've got a wealthy mum and dad you're going to do okay aren't you but if you haven't got a wealthy mum and dad you're just you're just in a situation where you look at the the elderly comparatively well off obviously there are some old age pensioners who don't have a great deal of money uh, but but you know if you if you were to look at the income divide, uh, age would be one of the predominant factors determining that. It know? is now, yeah. I mean, this is one because if, the obvious reason why we've been in a property bubble for the last forty years, mm. maybe even fifty years, and the property bubble is caused by the finance sector lending for housing, and that lending creates additional monetary demand for the housing, which actually is what drives up house prices. So that's we've been riding that bubble now really since the seventies. Um, well and truly since the since the the nineties, and what that means is people expect property to get more expensive, and if it does in your own property, then you know you hang on to it and you can sell it in your later life and have a, a large amount of money in your hands, and that we take as as normal. But there's a fascinating data series called the Herengrach Canal, 
uh, data series in the Netherlands. And the Herengracht Canal, and I think it sounds, it doesn't, it's not the Prince's, I forgot what Herengracht, I think it might have been the Lord's Canal, I'm not really sure. But the Herengracht Canal has darts as a time series going back to just before the Tulip Bubble. Right. Back in the, you know, the 1500s? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. A while and ago. That, that has periods where the house prices have been rising for 40 years and others where the house prices have been falling for 70 years. And depending on when you were born, you'd, you'd, you'd die believing house prices always rise, always rise, or you'd die believing house prices always fall. So it just happens that in our current time period, uh, we've had the period where house prices always rise. Okay. Um, so what that that is where the huge divide has come from because if you bought a house as a baby boomer back in the 50s uh, then you paid a trivial amount of money for it certainly less than three times your income and now you can sell it for 10 times the average income yeah and that's but, where the wealth of God has come from largely right but that's a one generation thing by the way the 1600s the tulip bubble just what? looked it up 15? you're 100, you're hey, 100, 100 years out like, you said 1500s I said, said 15 what is it 1600 oh dear okay, yeah well, 100 years out oh dear uh, but anyway that's all right we'll What's forgive you a century you. between friends exactly but so but that's a one-off thing isn't it That the fact that house prices have increased so much they're not going to keep on increasing at well, that rate how can they well I mean this, this, the state has been this is, this is where the, 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 the financial political system comes in the state itself the people who run the state the politicians uh, are so used to rising house prices and a lot of them they're part of the older generation they you know the i think the average number of homes owned by australians australia's political class i think is five mm. you know um so that makes you you're a landlord of course you want house prices to continue of course you want rents to continue increasing but then you have people who are voting for you 40 percent of them are tenants and they want prices to fall and they want rents to fall which way is the decision going to make go? They'll they all the nice words towards you about how they're gonna make it cheaper to rent and bring in policies that make it more expensive. So yeah. it's 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 a real trap. So is uh, so what's how's it gonna play out then? Are we, are we uh, well, I mean, it, it, has, something has to break, doesn't it? See, it, it, I mean, I I thought the housing bubble in Australia would break, okay? Mm. And what I ended up doing was encouraging the government to bring in another scheme to keep house prices rising. Although we genuinely got personal pain in this situation. So I was first asked about Australian house prices, as it happens, on the Kerry O'Brien 730 report. And that's somebody you, you do know. Mm. Uh, we share that particular experience. I think Bruce Forsyth would have been great on the 730. Report, by the way. So? I think Bruce Forsyth would have been great on the seven thirty. There report. you go. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, but I got on there with half so. half the show with with uh, with Kerry one day, and he asked me what's like that happened to house prices, and I said, as an analogy, well, house prices in Japan fell forty percent over the ten to fifteen years after their bubble. Burst. Economy burst, so mm. I can see no reason why Australia won't do the same thing. Now the next day he interviewed uh, for the whole of the show, Kevin Rudd and savaged him with my views. And one week later, uh, and it was really quite a savaging. If you saw the show, he was, he was, he was Kevin Rudd, who was stumbling and bumbling trying to handle the attacks from Kerry O'Brien, using my arguments as part of it. And one week later, he brought out the, the first homeowners scheme, mm. doubling and trebling the amount of money the government gave to people to buy a house. Yeah. Now that meant people, you, you, literally, if you were a, a young, if you were a young house buyer on the outskirts of Melbourne in two thousand and eight, the government gave you thirty five thousand quid 
that's the combination of the state and the federal. That's a deposit. Back in those days, there was about 10% of the price of a house. So they restarted the housing bubble. Mm. And so in, in what, I, what I saw, like in America... Because house prices, at the very least, would have gone up 35000 But actually, probably would have gone up 35000 times, times 10. Or, or times 10, because yeah. of the leverage. Yeah. So we just restarted the leverage again. Mm. Now you have the uh, the Albanese government doing a similar thing. Not mm. quite as bad, but you know, every time there's a potential for house prices to fall, in comes a scheme to rescue house prices. So all the about how we're going to make it cheaper to rent, blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry, the political, industrial, political, financial complex wins. Right, but it's not just an Australian phenomenon, it's everywhere, isn't it? So you've it's got the situation yeah. where people can't afford to buy houses, they've got more debt because they've taken out college loans, Yeah. Uh, the cost of, of everything is, is, is rising in, in price. Mm. So how does that carry on at yeah. some point I mean, without, an, without a mutiny, without a revolution, which maybe that's the, maybe that's the upshot? It's not something I can't see that this is something that will be. There'll be some form of moderation which well, will see the, us the, get the through. Long, the long-term thought I've always had is that the, you have an entire generation which is priced out of home ownership now, mm. and that you know, if you, if you, the average homeowner when my when I was in my twenties was also in their twenties. I didn't, which is one of my mistakes. But most people buying a house with their first you know, first marriage in their twenties. Yeah. Now, you, if you're lucky, you can buy the. If you're going to buy a house, you might be in your late thirties, early forties. So the higher that level gets, that you. Thank God you didn't, though, Steve. I mean, you would have split the uh, the proceeds from that house. How many times now? I've had <laughs> two divorces, and I've done it both times. Uh, that didn't help any. But anyway, the factor that I thought would always reverse this obsession with rising house prices was the proportion of the population that couldn't afford to buy houses getting closer and closer to the voting majority in the country. Mm. And like it now must be something in the order of 40% of the population that can no, can no longer afford, no longer aspire to having home ownership, right? So you get so you get rid of the mob that's at, at been a doing that. Point, the political, what, right? Yeah. But what? Okay, so politics switches. Yeah. How do you still fix the problem? Well, my argument, my, my argument, which has been around for a long, long time, is a modern debt jubilee. Mm. Okay. In that particular case, you, as, as well as getting rid of the people who are in favour of housing bubbles, uh, you'd also get rid of those who don't understand money, and say, okay, well, the government can create money just by running up negative equity for itself, which creates positive equity for the private sector. We use that capacity to buy the debt of the, of the current households, do it in such a way that we don't cause the fall in price to exceed the fall in debt, so they end up no, no worse off, but reduce house prices by a factor of two or three and bring them back to a sustainable sustainable level compared to incomes again and not let them get out of that back bracket. Um, so there's a, there's a guy who used to produce a thing called the Demographica Report who was a, uh, a New Zealand property developer. And unlike most people in that field, he was actually socially responsible. And he said a, a sustainable housing system is one where it costs about three years' income to buy a house. Now, we've hit you know, 10 and 13 times that instead. Uh, so you want to say you have a set of policies that mean that you make sure house prices never exceed you know, four times average annual income. Uh, but that means a political shift, uh, getting away from the dominance of the current political financial system in favour of house prices. Right, and it's an international world, isn't it? So, I mean, it would be... 
be hard, wouldn't it, for the UK to say, well, all, all the money that's coming to buy property from overseas that's coming into this country, we're, we're going to say no, well, again, no, again, no like, thank you, know, you for that. Again, overseas ownership is another issue. So how much of your, of your housing stock do you enable non-residents to buy? Mm. Now, it's open slather in the UK. It's open slather in most countries around the world. Uh, but some countries like, I think, Singapore in particular, uh, say no more than 5% of housing can be purchased by non-residents. Now, it makes sense to have non-residents you know, you you will have people working for multinational corporations who want to have a, a you know a, a, a housing for their executives when they travel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a certain amount of non-resident buying that I think is justified, but the unlimited ends up with being the same old create a bubble phenomenon that we're trying to get away from. So I think imposing legal limitations on how much you can actually allow of your housing stock to be purchased by non-residents. So Singapore, of course, I mean, a lot of the housing is owned by the state. Yeah, the classic people, they'll say, look at Singapore as an example of a successful capitalist economy. It's a successful capitalist economy with an extremely powerful state. So if the state was owning most of the housing stock, that would keep prices down, wouldn't it? Because if you if you bought a house, you wouldn't have many people to well, sell. Well, this it to. this again is where Britain's bubble has come from because they uh, the right to buy, mm. okay, the privatisation of publicly owned housing. If that had been tied in with the bank its banking system, where it was still only building societies you could borrow money from, then you wouldn't have necessarily priced the housing out of reach of everybody. Um, but so let's just stick on that point for a second. Yeah. So I so building society yeah lent out money that it had basically. So mm-hmm. what it was the what most people actually think of the way banks operate yeah. and that people yeah. and people if deposit banks money the way in. Economists and, think they operate. We wouldn't have had a housing bubble, which yeah. shows the economists don't know what they're talking about. Right. So building go bubble. to a building society. They 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 have money that people have put into the building society to yeah. save. And they can take it out again. They can, ta- they can take it out, and that money is used to 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 lend to people to buy houses. Yeah. That was that that was the idea. Whereas whereas banks are creating money to mm. lend and hence there's really no restriction other than what they believe is the yeah. value of the asset yeah. and the value of the asset is increasing all the time because they're lending more wow circular loop there yeah well and truly so um okay so that so that's one aspect of it if we if we had a situation though where there was more state ownership uh, then there would be less stock available to the private sector but also less demand if it was decent stock if we yeah. said well actually you know, let's go full socialist on this, like Singapore has, uh, <laughs> and say, well, actually, for most people, actually, a state-owned house is really quite nice, and you mm. wouldn't, you don't need to own; you just pay the state the rent. They can control the it's rent. It's security that matters more than ownership in mm. that sense. And if you get a secure ten- tenure through being a, 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 a tenant in a state system, then you don't have that panic of what's going to happen to me if I can't afford to pay the rent. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd love to have a a movie where we took people from what they were told the future would be in the 1970s if you go with the neoliberalism route and what has actually happened. And like the whole idea was you'd have higher salaries, you wouldn't need pensions because you're getting paid more money, you'd be saving more, the economy would be growing faster, higher quality uh, services because they'd be deprived by the private sector that knows what it's... What we've got a disaster. Mm. Okay, it, it is gig economy, insecurity, unaffordable housing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If this is what people packaged up and said, this is what neoliberals are going to give us, nobody would have voted for it. Right, but uh, now we're there. How do we get out of it? How do we get thing? out of it? That's that's the real issue. Mm. And well, I, let's we'll yeah. explore that when we in come next, back in the, in the next back, bit in the next bit uh, of the debunking economics podcast. Back with in me a sec- talking with Phil Dobby, who's on the other side of the desk to me, and coincidentally, I happen to be on the other side of the desk to him. Oh, that's a great line. 
I, I wish I'd used that. Oh, yeah. uh, back I've in never just, heard it before. Back in just a second. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So welcome back to the Debunking Economics Podcast. By the way, what did you think of our new host? I'm going to, the problem is if he's going to be the host, I've got to be the one who answers all the economics questions. Yeah, that could, that was going to get us nowhere at all. Hmm. Let's look at uh, the wealth divide. Let's put some numbers behind this. Hmm. If you take 30 to 34 years as the reference age group, this is according to the Office of National Statistics, people aged 65 to 69 have around £450,000 more in terms of mean individual, not household, mean individual wealth compared to that 30 to 34-year-old age group. So almost half a million pounds more. I mean, as you get older, you're going to spend a bit. But even so, Mm -hmm. at 90, they are still £200,000 Better off than a thirty to thirty-four year old in terms of their mm. material wealth. So they've so they've had half a million. Mm. They've whittled it down in their old age. They are ninety. They've still got two hundred thousand pounds more than a thirty-year-old. So they've they're building up wealth all through their life. Mm. They're spending it, but they've still got more, which is going to get passed on, obviously, to the next generation. The question is, will thirty-five-year-olds? ever managed to get to that stage where at 65 they've got half a million in and wealth. And that's well, I think the answer is no because what's happened over to that cohort over time is that we've changed the rules so that rather than getting free education, you've now got to pay for it. You take out debt to do that, and Australia is responsible for starting that HEX idea, Higher Education Contribution Scheme. Yeah. So you end up graduating from university not with a free education behind you and therefore and a salary coming your way, but a debt you have to repay. And the, again, with the indexation that's been done with that debt, a lot of them have found that a, a decade after they owe more than they did when they graduated. So I really can't see that this, this coming generation accumulating anything like what the current one has, and that's partly because the current one's written a Ponzi scheme as well. Mm. Coming in at the end, there, ain't, there, ain't, there, is no, there's no, there are no crumbs left for the Ponzi's. Yeah. So I, I really don't think they're going to get anything like that level of wealth. Well, so the finance sector's, well, the finance sector's doing well, of course, because of all the student loans. It's, mm. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's getting money from that. So Martin Lewis, which is a finance guy here in the UK, mm. if you're in the, listening in the UK, you'll know exactly who he is. You wouldn't know elsewhere. But he's a guy who, who provides some sort of fairly sound advice really yeah. for people about how to uh, look after their money and save on energy bills and all that sort of stuff. So he calls the uh, student loans. He says they're not really a loan uh, because you spend your life paying off it. It's really a 9% tax, a, you know, in, incidental tax 
on uh, incremental tax for anybody who's earning over the uh, the twenty five thousand pound a year threshold, mm. uh, and most people will be repaying that through their life, and they'll end up paying twice what their course cost by the mm. by the end of it, uh, all for you know going to uni. Uh, or, or whatever they did to it. It's not just uni. I mean, they might be doing a, a more vocational course. Mm. Uh, it, the same thing applies. So it's just an extra tax. That's a good way is, of looking at it. Which is just slowing down uh, their yeah. ability to uh, to buy stuff and contribute to the economy, but also build their wealth up to, so they get to the stage where the older generation... And, and that's what, one reason I would expect the housing bubble to fall over ultimately because you... Who's you, going to buy the houses? You kind of, yeah, you're getting a cohort that comes... If they've got the debt, which means they get excluded from being able to get a loan in the first place. Mm. Um, so that's... And then you've seen the same thing in so many bubbles around the world. I mean, the Japanese one was the first major one to burst. And the Japanese housing bubble occurred between 1980 and 1990. And by the end of it, the imperial palace in... Tokyo, which was, I think it's about 10 square kilometres, was worth more than California. Um, maybe not a bad trade these days, given the state of San Francisco. Uh, but but it was, and then it burst, and then house prices have been coming down ever since. And they've finally sort of stabilised, but that, that bubble's gone. Um, but you would expect the same thing to happen in the West. And they have to certainly have except been house price the, declines, the- but... Except for the inheritance. So yeah. when, when I die, my kids will get this place. And when you get a, a social class divide between those who parents who had people who had housing versus those who don't have housing, you have a, have a form of class divide and property ownership. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, you're not, no, you will. That is the situation you have that we're now. in now. Yeah. Uh, but it's just going to become more pronounced, isn't it? You would have thought. Mm. So uh, in the US, the average borrower of a student loan own, owes just under 30,000 US dollars, but that gets older with age. So for those aged over 62, the balance is almost 50,000. So that's interesting. So they're actually, probably because they've just accrued interest and they haven't been paying it off faster, or maybe it's just a factor that uh, the average is getting lower, perhaps because there's less people going to university, perhaps, and taking out these loans. I'm not not really quite sure. Uh, But they've not been very good at paying it back. Uh, I mean, anyway, the upshot is all of this is a goldmine for the finance sector, isn't it? All of these loans. Yeah, because you know they're, they've arranged the loans, they're getting the interest on them, and uh, and people are locked in for life and having to pay it. And like uh, speaking of somebody who was in the education sector, uh, the impact of this has been disastrous on the education se- sector as well. Mm. So the, the whole because you pay a price, you expect to get. A result. <laughs> well, yeah, and so you get an attitude of the students that paid for their education. We're giving my degree, mm. uh, which is entirely the wrong way to treat education. It's uh, it, it, education you earn. You don't pay for it. You earn it. Yeah, and you've got you've got to get you know show your studying, show your learning, uh, learn the material, then you'll pass. But instead, it's pay for the degree. Give me my degree type attitude. Well, I think when I got my degree, I think it was only like three or five percent of the population actually. Yeah. got a degree. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's also been a bit of... I mean, that's one thing that uh, Peter Turchin talks about very intriguingly in his uh, Age of Chaos work and saying that uh, you, what you have over time, uh, like if you have a certain number of PhD students being graduated per academic, um, then if it's more than one uh, per, per lifetime of the academic, uh, you get an inflation in the number of people with PhDs and ultimately... It degrades the quality, quality the, the the value of the 
qualification itself. But, but more people spending more time thinking early on in their career, I mean, that has to that be a good thing. That would be worthwhile, okay, but it would, it would, when you're tied up to employment and, uh, and income, then you start getting the perversions we're seeing now. But a major thing with the, the privatisation of education uh, is a decline in the free time and the capacity to think of the academics themselves. I've seen this outrageously. The uh, uh, Rather than privatisation meaning more uh, you know, entrepreneurial behaviour, et cetera, et cetera, it's meant more and more treating academics like production line workers and with managers who've got to force them to work to get anything done and got to monitor and check on them all the time with things like the... Uh, uh, research excellence framework and the teaching excellence framework and so on. And you find you spend all your damn time answering the bureaucratic forms and bugger all doing any thinking or research. So it's degraded the entire bloody system. Mm. And like most academics I know now are looking forward to getting out. Uh, so that the, it turns an attractive career where you've got a chance to think into an a, 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 a uncomfortable one where you spend all your time answering to bureaucrats. <laughs> that was not exactly what people thought was going to happen when you privatised education. I think that might be every sector of the world over, might it? But just back back to this idea about the uh, the, the wealth divide and, yeah. and how young people will, will muddle through, or will they muddle through? So, I mean, obviously, I know you're a man who has complete faith in the, the ability for the economy to self-correct itself. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I you, believe cause, in equilibrium. Because yeah. you, you, you were talking yourself about how we're going to see prices, house prices come down, because they have to. I mean, is that... Um, I mean, so it is a bit of self-correction going on there. I mean, is that is that going to be the upshot? Because something's got well, to that, something's uh, got to give, hasn't it? That, that's why I use the example of the, the Herengrach Canal mm. up here, because there, when you get an excessive bubble and then it breaks, then the the, the just as the bubble took ages to reach its peak, the decline from the bubble can take ages as well. Yeah, and you can have entire generation that goes by. Well, it would be multi generational, wouldn't it? Because you'd still have, and what is it they say? I think I read somewhere that uh, it takes three generations. I think from to, to lose to, the money to lose the money. All so Frankie, so, Frank Packer, Kerry Packer, and yeah, Jimmy Packer, yeah, for those who know the Australians. Donald Trump's dad, Donald Trump obviously having a fantastic go at uh, trying to get that down to two rather than three. Yeah. And then Donald Trump Jr. obviously will, you know, will we'll see it all off. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, so similarly, I mean, we do have, for if anybody's got a house, they're going to pass that on to their kids. Their kids will be able to afford to buy a house. Yeah. But perhaps not as, as, as well. Then only much. if the house prices continue rising as they have been, will that child who inherits the house be able to maintain the wealth position of the parent? Yeah. Now, um, you know, I mean, I've, but it is multi generational. That's yeah, the thing. Yeah. 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 So and and if you so you, that's no great uh, compensation for those people struggling to say, oh, don't worry. Your grandkids are going to be all right, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you're still going to struggle. Well, I think we do have a real generational divide politically coming our way. Mm. And the anger, the, you, you can feel the anger that a lot of young people have towards the baby boomers in general, saying, look, you've got free education, yeah. uh, you've got cheap houses, you, you uh, had low debt, you know, you, you, uh, uh, you might have complained about having to get a 30% deposit to buy the house, but you could save that much money because lower cost of living. And now you're imposing this high debt on us to, to begin with, house, house prices we can't even consider buying into. So when they become the political majority, then I could see quite a serious reversal of, of policy about house prices. But the question is, who will get into power You know, of that generation? Will it be the, the homeowners, the landlords who become the political 
activists rather than the uh, the, the unemployed and the homeless. Well, and it's and, been uh, it's been building for a while, hasn't it? Because I remember my dad uh, who died many years ago, but I remember him saying to me, and he worked, you know, he was a works accountant for ICI. Mm. And we lived in a, you know, I was born in a, I was born at home, small house in Liverpool. Uh, when we were six, we moved out to Cheshire. Uh, again, you know, not particularly a big house. We never had a massive house, but they were always a little bit bigger than the last one. Yeah. Uh, and we moved, we moved a few times. And my dad was always home at half past five. And I remember him saying to me once, you know, I was at work or whatever, uh, I'd started work a few years into it. And he was saying, you know, I, he's, his generation had it lucky, he said, because we didn't have to work as hard. Mm. He said, you know, he, he did finish at the same time every day, um, didn't really put in a massive amount of effort mm. uh, and uh, could still afford to buy a house. And, you know, his expectations perhaps were lower than, you know, th- than subsequent generations, which yeah. are no factors into it at all. Uh, but, you know, right back then, you know, there's this recognition that, the, that life was getting harder. It's just elevated now, hasn't it, to the mm. point where the, the current generation. And it's, again, it's the finance sector. It's the debt they're carrying. It's the fact they've got to pay for everything with borrowed money uh, that is is making that unsustainable for the youth. So the intergenerational wealth transfer in the UK, uh, so how much of the money that you get that gets passed on to your kids mm-hmm. uh, is actually higher in the UK than in the United States. So 30% of households in the UK have received an inheritance compared to 22% in France and Germany and 17% in the US. So only 17% of of households in in the US have had their wealth added to through some form of intergenerational transfer. But if you look at the, the value of all of that, so the net wealth of households, intergenerational transfers account for... 18% 18% of the entire household wealth in Britain. So basically a fifth of you know the wealth that people have is yeah. money that they basically got from their parents compared to 12% in the US. But in France and Germany, it's about 32%. But they're actually having less people passing it on, but the aggregate impact is greater. So a third of the average wealth in France and Germany is money that's been passed on. And in Italy, it's 40%. Now, I can't help feeling that part of that is cultural because you look at some of those southern uh, mediterranean countries Mm. and there's much more of that intergenerational living so you can understand that you know that more money is going to get passed on from but it's also the the fraction of society that passes it on i mean you're you're quoting those figures at me yeah i was thinking what's a way to explain those disparities and if you have if everybody had a home and everybody passed on the home to their children you get a hundred percent figure so it's yeah. it's not just the it, 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 it's not it, the size it, of it, it it's it, the proportion it of shows people. The, the, yeah. the, the, the concentration yeah. and so germany by having a, a larger proportion passing it on is actually got a, a fairer distribution of income and if you look also i mean one thing about about germany because of its uh, well no, germany was only seven so the number of people actually passing it on yeah was only 17 percent so we actually, uh, whereas it's thirty uh, percent in the UK, so mm. less is being passed on in Germany, okay. but the value of it is greater. So that's the, in that's Germany. the point. It's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's the opposite, though. The, yeah, the, yeah. the situation is a, it's the situation's worse in a, in in a way in terms of that rich poor divide that the rich are passing on more, but there's fewer of them doing it. Mm-hmm. So uh, whichever way you look at it, it's not not a good situation. Is it? I wonder how we get out of that situation then. Inheritance tax. <sighs> 
Uh, well, we used to have inheritance tax, of course, and that was one of the first things abolished mm. by the whole neoliberal period. And that meant there was no tel- there was no tax on accumulation of wealth. It still exists. It's just quite, I don't think it does exist in Australia. Yeah. Well, the state tax has been abolished and yeah. or certainly drastically reduced. Yeah. And the argument comes back to saying there should be an estate tax. tax. And, yeah. Uh, it's, it's not for funding the state. It's for it's for not letting massive levels of inequality develop. Yeah. Like, you're always going to have inequality. There's never there'll never be a human society without some degree of inequality. Even Cro-Magnon society had some degree of inequality, and you you had hierarchies that have been a common part of human existence forever. But it's when you get a hyper extended distribution of income, uh, where the wealthy make far more than the the poor, and people have no idea of the the income gap because you you relate to what you you see in your own social circles. And I've even had economists making this sort of case to me. Like, you know, I saw people getting rewarded for the amount of work they do and talking a construction worker talking about other construction workers. When you talk about the bloke who owns the company, it's a different story entirely. And so you you don't want that extreme accumulation to occur and you don't want it to be amplified by the financial system. But there will be an accumulation without fail. It's we're letting the financial sector amplify that by the gearing that it's done to house and property prices. So it is housing. I come back to the finance sector every time as the cause of our woes. Yeah, of course. Irrespective of whatever the question is, that's right. The answer is the finance sector. Why has the weather been so bad? It's the finance sector. Finance sector. So, uh, but it is fundamentally house, I mean, this well, I mean, let's not, you know, mess about. The wealth is fundamentally house prices. Yeah, fundamentally. And and also with share prices as well, another yeah. bubble in share prices too. But it's asset prices, and therefore owners of assets benefit. What we should be really trying to base our you know, inequality, acceptable inequality, is income, not asset ownership. But, but with with houses and and shares, isn't it? Isn't supply also part of it? So it's too much money chasing. Too few assets is the is the issue, isn't it? Yeah, and the too much money has been created by the banking sector and then mm. enhanced by the government with yeah. you know schemes for the government to keep the housing bubble going. Yeah. So and to uh, keep the share market going as well, you know, sort of like that that idea that well we'll tax you less if you invest that money into a pension fund and that money that pension fund's then going to invest it into into the share market. Yeah. So yeah. that's increasing those assets as well. Yeah. I know the, yeah. the, the classic data I remember from the. Uh, the, the 80s bubble in Australia was that at the beginning of the 1980s, 30% of superannuation funds were going into the share market. By 87, when the market crashed 25% in one day, 70% of superannuation funds were going into the stock market. So what you have is self-reinforcing bubbles. Uh, you, you, you should have had that money being used for investment and infrastructure. Instead, it was used for speculation. And so you know, back to Keynes's classic comment: when the when the welfare of the society depends upon the activities of a casino, the job is likely to be all done. So, if you had that uh, that regulation then on on capping house prices based on the, uh, the debt, based on the house on the income earning potential rent, rental of capacity of the property, yeah. right? And you had a debt jubilee. So, so debt jubilee sounds quite drastic. Most people would go, "Well, how could you afford it?" I wonder how much actually it would cost and if one country did it and nobody else did it then there might be a, a bit of a concern about that that government and you could see a, a, an impact on the, the value of their currency fairly swiftly if we just did it today for example without any positioning as to what was trying to be achieved but i wonder uh you know how much that would have cost in relation to how much we actually spent coping with the pandemic 
probably similar amounts of money, I suspect. Well, I mean, again, this is a case with not what it costs, it's how much you have to create the money to mm. do it. Yeah. And it'd be government. But we created the money for the pandemic to cope with the pandemic as yeah. well. So I think it might be the similar sort of magnitude that we're talking about. 25% of GDP, it's a possibility. But then mm. what would mean is if you then had house prices falling by a substantial margin so people could afford, mm. uh, people currently can't afford uh, could, could consider buying a house if you made it used to abolish student debt. So students who currently don't spend because they're scrimping and saving to be able to pay a bit of their debt back mm. could instead spend. Then you might get a you get an economic boost out of it, not a not an economic compression. So all of this leads nicely to what we're going to talk about next week, which is what can we learn from China. Oh. Okay, uh, and I think that might be a good point to leave it on because because I think you're verging into that territory really where yeah create and invest and uh, and and That's the, what the, the economy does well. Yeah, we'll look at that next week on the Debunking Economics podcast. Thanks, Steve. Okay, the Debunking Economics podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.